Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 143 of Control the Controllables. If you want an episode full of wisdom and humility, this is the one for you. I would rewrite the beginning of every tennis tournament to actually warn people that they are about to lose. Do they want to get back in the car and go home? The great Keith Reynolds, for anyone in the tennis world that hasn't had the opportunity to spend time with Keith, do. If you haven't read up on on his philosophies, his thoughts, his opinions, then do. And also listen to this episode as he goes deep into the way that he thinks about tennis. It's all bigger picture stuff, even though he did work with Jamie Baker, who was top 200 in the world. He coached 35 national champions. He's been someone who's been around the game for many, many, many years and seen it through all the lenses as an owner of a club, of someone who has worked within the national governing body, someone who's played himself. He won the over 35s. He's over 35's national champion in the UK. And in 2015, he won the LTA Lifetime Achievement Award. This one will leave you feeling good about yourself, good about our sport. So wherever you are, drop what you're doing and enjoy Keith Reynolds. So Keith Reynolds, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? I am doing never better. And right, right at the top of the game. And as always, Keith, and, and for, for those listening, if you're going, because we are now listened to in over 120 countries, Keith, if somebody out there goes, who's Keith Reynolds? Listen, and you'll find out, because you won't find a nicer, more passionate man in the game. And you're going to learn lots from, from this chat. And, 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 and Keith, the way that we've always done these, these episodes... And, and I'm really fascinated to hear this. I, I see you as someone who has an unbelievable passion for the game of tennis. And you you spread that across the tennis community far and wide. Where did that passion start for you? I think it's a lot of family uh, hand-on Christmas presents, as it were, in the same way that so much of what happens to children in their life, uh, if parents... Um, are in certain professions, if certain if parents have had a home life, has expectations of stopping on at school, perhaps even going on to um, academies, degrees or whatever, that gets passed down as being the normal. And that is what I would refer to as tennis. N- tennis was normal. Uh, very modest standard by my parents, uh, would have done a lot of their getting to know each other at a tennis club. Okay. Uh, I came from a family where I, there was one national junior champion 
in Great Britain in it, my cousin. Uh, I played, my brother played. It was as natural as, um, as the type of television programs that might get switched on that I would then get used to watching. Yeah. Effortless part. It's the handing on of a baton. Yeah. I think that it's, a, it's such a good point, Keith, because this is episode 143. Of, of of this podcast and you know it's unbelievable how many of the stories have started like that and i actually had fran jones on on a few days ago and her story didn't and it was almost a little bit of a shock you know it was you know how how do you get into a game that i guess requires so much commitment and, and it gets into your blood and it it ends up like you say being passed on so much so it almost seems against the norm to get into it without having parents. So it's it's interesting that that was your start as well. And I think that that, uh, and we might hopefully get into those type of, how do you break through into a tense uh, environment uh, later on in our discussion, Dan, because uh, that would be a, a very important question for the governing bodies of the tennis game is how do you continue to keep the snowball rolling downhill that gathers, gathers size? Uh, you, you're living in an extraordinary uh, deep um, culture of tennis in, your, in the, your adopted country at the moment. I felt it in other places, uh, Argentina especially, and therefore continuing to have people enjoy the game is not a problem because everybody knows somebody else who's enjoying the game. So there's peer groups there to help you into it. There's parents and family to help you into it. But how do you break into kind of sections of our community that have not played? That is the big question. And that is something perhaps to, we could revisit later on. I think we visit it now. Well, if that, is the, if that is the case, then... Um, this is where I probably start to get out my stool and stand on it. The 120 countries that you broadcast to or are heard in, Dan, possibly don't know much about Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park, but this is a place where anybody can take a stool, stand on it, and shout out whatever message they want to, provided it's, it's well within the law. And in this particular way, I, what has happened, and the joy of longevity, my age, is to start off tennis in one era and then see what happens as the different culture, tennis culture changes over time and what it actually does to the impact on the population. If, for instance, now tennis is sold on what I would argue for from my speaker's corner to Hyde Park would be on the idea that the glitz and the glamour and the top 100 and the number one and the Grand Slam is a role model. I would, I'd argue hugely against that. Yes. I, I, I think that you might see it in, you might have an element of belief in tennis. But if, for instance, uh, we went into something like athletics where there was a pole vault or a high jump and you put up the world record high jump and then you said to a, a group of juniors, this is what we're going to aim for when, they're, when their necks are craning, looking up at the sky, can hardly see the pole. Let's say, what has that got to do with me? And likewise, what has uh, the great players got to do with me? 
never can reach it, never can aspire to it. And to sell the idea of tennis on the idea of those dreams, and we're on to the reality of tennis, is, is a mission that I would not accept to, if I had to sell it, because there's no, I, would, I wouldn't get much commission out of selling to the number one player in the world. But you could get a lot of commission out of selling to the tens of thousands of people who just simply wanted to play the game. So I go back to now my main point. To sell the game of tennis now not, does not require the role models of brilliant young people like Emma and Andy because they are outliers on the curve. They are the exceptions to the rule and you don't create systems on exceptions. But what I do believe sincerely is that it would be provable that being deeply involved in what I call the tennis experience, which therefore is very a broad base, it can go from club level to county level to state level, to uh, attempting to be on the tour at the junior level or the senior level, anything to do with tennis, the important recreational competitive matches you play against your friend, of which there purely is bragging rights at the end of it. The more that you get involved in the tennis experience, the better you are equipped to cope with things which are outside of the tennis court. And if tennis was sold on facts and statistics in today's demanding age, for instance, children get better academic results because they are involved in tennis. People have to have less interviews to get a job because they have been deeply involved in tennis. I think this would appeal to much wider and wider communities who don't have a tennis heritage. Because I look at an analogy of this, and you can comment, please. Education. Is, ten, is education sold by governing bodies within the educational field to say that we are looking for Nobel Prize winners? Or is the basic message of education to say education is beneficial for everybody? It's possibly more beneficial the deeper you can go into it but nobody loses from it and everybody has a better chance of gaining from it. And if that was the case, I wouldn't try to sell tennis on Grand Slam winners if I had my hands on the steering wheel and the levers of power. I'd sell it on the basis that anybody who deeply participates gets a lot of that tennis experience, is better equipped to cope with whatever field, business, or commerce, or trade, or vocation they want to go into because of what has happened along the journey of trying to have a deep tennis experience. If the, the park at Hyde Park is packed at this moment, <laughs> you know, what, what started as just me has, 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 has multiplied. And it, it's, it's really beautiful how you've said it. I, I think You've said what I've tried to say for 12 years here at Soto Tennis. Yes. You know, and, and you've said it in a much more eloquent and articulate way than I, I could ever say it. And it's it's exactly that. And and you know, I've I've been fortunate enough 
whether anyone's listened, I don't know, to, to do a couple of online conferences over the last few months. And one of my first slides is always showing facts and figures. And if we talk about the top 200 ATP and WTA, yes. there is actually zero point zero 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 there should be nine so listen four five percentage chance of getting into the top 200 in the world of of players that play the game of tennis these figures come from the itf so that is that is itf figures globally so exactly that how what are we it's it, we're we're selling that wrong message, and yeah. you know my my big philosophy is that tennis is a vehicle, you know, and we're very fortunate that it's it's the vehicle that takes us through life. And there's lots of different stops, and you might jump out and play a grand slam, but you get back in, and and that that is taking us along the way, and we're picking up all of these amazing skills that ultimately make us a better person. And and give us the opportunities that we then get. So, um, I love the way that you've said that. Well, tennis is and it's the ten. Well done, and well, congratulations on Sato as well, Dan. A magnificent service to the community, and as long as it can be seen as a, a, a service to a community, then everybody from the community might feel welcome to come out through the gates and onto the tennis court. Absolutely. If it, if it, for instance, you're in the fortunate position which will also become the unfortunate position as well. If you were the coach to everybody who played in the Grand Slam male and female singles, you'll have 128 females start off and 128 males. It's Wimbledon, it lasts a fortnight. On the following Monday after finals day, out of the, all those people who were playing, 128 times six, I think that uh, that would probably come to 256. You will have two people who come back into your tennis club to say, Dan, you are the greatest coach in the world. I have loved being here. Will you stay with me forever? But you will have 254 who will say, Dan, you haven't done a very good job. Yeah. And if you want to sell tennis, I don't think it's to sell tennis to the two people who can become the champions and lift the trophy. You sell it to the 254 who can't get there. And likewise, that would, that would be the case right back down to the junior level. If we haven't got something in tennis competition, whereby we are congratulating people for having participated... We haven't got, it's not culturally rewarded just for having tried hard to get through the first or the second round. Then the reality of tennis must be told with truthful by ourselves as coaches, by referees who start tournaments off and by governing bodies to say, do you realize that at the sharp end of this pyramid, there is one person? There is only one person ever who's going to lift the singles trophy. Now, at the beginning of the tournament, would all you children please put up your hands and tell me whether you're still happy to give of your best in this tournament, despite the fact that every one of you, apart from one, will lose. And that is the reality we need to sell it on. But we now need to sell the journey 
as being one of incredible personal value. So that winners are defined by people who grow, personality, depth, resilience, and one of those gets to also lift a trophy as well. But that's the bonus. Yeah, no, very, very good, Keith. And uh, it's in in terms in terms of that culture, I guess, specific to to Great Britain, because that's where you have spent the the lion's share of of your tennis tennis career. Correct. Has has that culture evolved over the years, or do you feel that that culture has been there from day one and enduring the different systems and different people and implementations of, of many different uh, of, of many different areas that people have tried? Has it stayed the same? Well, this is the longevity part, Dan. I was born into an era of playing tennis when there were only the people who were basically amateur could play at tournaments that we can recognize. Um, Wimbledon was the first Grand Slam to go open in 69. And before that, it was a British tournament called the Hard Courts, which went open in the year, went in the year before. So then everybody after that became called a player. So during the, my formative years on the tennis court, or the years when I was attracted into it when I was biting on the bait of playing tennis. There was no expectation of making any money out of the game, no expectation of being a so-called professional. What did that do? It didn't stop anybody from playing because what it did was to actually act as a sieve. Those people who enjoyed the game for its own sake continued to play. And in our country, as you go, well, no, you would rise through being a local junior through to perhaps playing junior county to perhaps then getting into a senior county team, the first team or the second team or the third team, of which there was a competitive structure based around representing your county. Nobody expected anything else but to get a career job, a way of earning an income and play deep recreational tennis in their spare time or their holiday. So in that respect, it was comfortable because everybody could go horizontal wherever they wanted to, at club level, at county level, some might try for international level. But I wasn't ever questioned about why did I only become a county player or why did I only become... Um, uh, a qualifier for a bigger tournament. Nobody held it in disrepute. There was no negativity to it. It was rather like in this great country of ours where we have great scenery, and I live in a lovely, truly national, beautiful national park. If I went walking out of my door, door here now into the national park called the Peak, I wouldn't expect to be questioned by anybody who I might have a cup of coffee with, was saying, why aren't I walking in the Alps? Or why aren't I walking in the Hindu Kush? Or why haven't you even attempted to get to base camp for Everest? They're, they are congratulating me for just simply going for a walk in some rolling hills. And that's what we don't get. People get punished for not being the number one. And that is something which is so culturally difficult to change by people 
like myself standing at Hyde Park Corner speaking out loud because I've only got a little megaphone. People like you have a bigger megaphone, but the biggest megaphone is held by the governing bodies, starting off with the ITF and then going through every other nation in the world. And this is the message to combat the Hollywood, the glitz, the I must have it and I must have it now mentality of our culture on a much wider scale that we are in. And with Spain and Argentina, because you you mentioned them, obviously, I, I've got yes. some, some experience in Spain. Yes. Um, we had Cameron Norrie's coach, yes. uh, Facu, who who was amazing, and he and he he shared a lot about Argentina actually and, and the culture there, yes. Yes. which was fascinating insights. It's yes. not something I have personal experience on. Yes, what are the big differences from your lens? Yes, in, in those countries compared to the UK. Well, let, let me if I could sum it up in rather simple sentences. I, if you were to, if you were to go into a group of people and you didn't know them, you would ask possibly if you wanted to be social, you'd ask a an icebreaker question. <clears throat> if you're in England, you'd say, "What's the weather like in your town or your area?" In America, you'd say, "What church do you go to?" The icebreaker question in Argentina is, "What sports club do you belong to?" So it is seen as being taken for granted that it is normal to be a deep participant in a hockey club, a swimming club, a polo club, a tennis club, a football club, uh, a volleyball club. And so that is the difference. It is what becomes not special, but what becomes normal. Yeah, it, it's 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 so true. And it's, I mean, I, 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 I see it here. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just... Sota Grande itself, and you've kindly come to see us, Keith, so you know the area a little bit. Between Sota Grande and Gibraltar, which is 20 minutes one way, and between Sota Grande and Estepona, which is the other way, I've got no idea how many tennis clubs there are. Yes. Genuinely. Yeah. my, My son plays football. Yeah. And you would you would think this area isn't that highly populated, but you go to any village, I'm talking any village, yes. Yes. and they have these beautiful football clubs, yes. which which are which are family run, which are yes. yes, it's not just turn up and play your football and leave. It's it's you go, you play the football match, you then stay and watch the older ones. Yes. You know, people are having beers, the barbecues on. Yes, and, and that's just in these really small, tiny little towns. Yeah. Yes. So, so I I completely get what you're saying about the normalization of it, and it, it's and and just if you you spare me a minute on this as well, I I go back to even my age group, please, and Juan Carlos Ferrero, who many of you know, anyone in the tennis world will know Juan Carlos Ferrero, and at under fourteen tabs this little Spanish guy that nobody had ever seen. He'd never played any of the Tennis Europe Tour, rocked up, won the event, <laughs> disappeared for four years. Where is this guy? Comes back, wins Junior French Open four yeah. years later. Three or four years later, wins the real French Open. And it's in, and, and what was happening there is he was just quietly getting on with his tennis in his area within Spain, 
because the infrastructure is in place to be able to do that, the competition wonderful. structure. That, and, and I think it's it's difficult to, to do that. And I think it's linked into the same thing. So for a minute now, Keith, you are the main man. I mean, you are anyway for, for me and for many. <laughs> but but, 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 but by, by title, you are the you are the main man. You've got you've got your team of people. What are your what are your one or yes. two initial first things that you do to try and t- change that culture? Uh, I would I would start longitudinal studies of juniors in tennis. And I would track them through their, through their junior schooling life and then into a period of their senior life. So it might be something which is initiated over a long time, could well be up to a 20-year longitudinal studies. And the longitudinal studies will track the trajectories that children fly from their early days through to when they are deeply into adult life. Because I would take the risk that I would prove that tennis is an extraordinarily valuable vehicle that they travel with, because it will take them to a higher trajectory than others will. There are other great sports of which I both enjoyed playing, but I would strongly argue that tennis is the king and queen of all the sports. The gladiatorial contest, the ability to easily get into competition, the um, the volume of losses you have against the small number of wins that you have, the length of time it takes to mature as a tennis player, because tennis is simply a very fast-moving game of chess, will help all those people to have something which they take away from tennis and into the life that they must lead because so few people make a living out of tennis at what is a professional level. There are huge opportunities of coaching and acting in a way, even in a country that is not proliferate in producing great national players in comparison to Spain and to Argentina, uh, that that the UK is, there are a large number of tennis coaches making a living because of how much the nation appreciates tennis without it being tapped. We might have two and a half, three and a half thousand tennis coaches making professional living in this country. You wouldn't even have that within the football world where most people would be giving up their time on an amateur basis Certainly the running track, the swimming pool, the table tennis, the badminton, all of these other places do not have volumes of people able to have a living. And that's because the the country will not be valuing those opportunities as much as they are valuing the tennis opportunity, because there is something that says tennis is very, very special. So I would put in a longitudinal study. I would rewrite the beginning of every tennis tournament to actually warn people that they are about to lose. Do they want to get back in the car and go home? So that everybody becomes aware of the tennis reality. Reality is massive. Of which they're going into. So there is no question later on of them saying, you didn't tell me (laughs) that only one wins, as it were. And then... I would also 
it reintroduce for the good of the game the value of mixed doubles play. One of the difficulties that we have a we have a lot of international effort to try to make an equality between men and women, politically, commercially, domestically, financially. And tennis is one of the unique opportunities of that being done on the big scale, where men and women are equally important within the participation game. Can't do it in rugby, can't do it in soccer, can't do it in so many other sports. And that actually was one of the highlights of the uh, Japanese Olympic Games when there were so many mixed events. Incredible. The triathlon. Brilliant. I, st- I was I was due to go to a wedding <clears throat> and that well I did go to the wedding I didn't miss the wedding but I was going to a wedding the next day and I should have been getting some sleep <laughs> and in my in my hotel room I got my kids down and I yeah. I, I I started watching it and I, I <clears throat> couldn't I couldn't stop you know it was Correct. incredible wasn't it it was it was it was keep your eyes on it stuff for don't want yeah. to miss it yeah and that is so available and has always been available in tennis it is part and parcel of what is actually um, a normal tennis setup or has been in the past. And the idea that tennis is taken over by the glitz of individuality, that is singles, which is the way it is broadcast and seen and televised, needs, I would attempt to try to reverse that. One, because I think it gets many more girls involved in the game. Their desire for quality social contact in safe circumstances, it couldn't be on anything better than the tennis court and the tennis tournament. The ability for the boys who are playing, who might be uh, a capable, might be capable of serving faster. They're certainly capable of growing taller, growing heavier and possibly putting on more muscular power into the game. Creates an opportunity of how to, how to be uh, the perfect partner for somebody who doesn't have that talent or that depth of talent. Whereas for the girls, it's also raising the level of the bar that they're trying to actually jump over or play at in this case, because they are facing 123, 124 mile per hour serves, as opposed to that being the exception in the girls game. It is pretty close to the norm at the boys' games, and likewise all the way through the different levels of it. So it would be mixed doubles, it would be longitudinal studies, and it would be the reality of the sport, which also which also is put alongside the benefits of the challenge. Very good. And to and you just pick up on, on a couple of things. Please. Your... When I when I speak to someone like yourself, it's like I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that. I want to jump into that. <laughs> so I, I've got to try and I've got to try and pick the pick the right thing to go. But a couple of things are linked to the curve and yes. the outliers, which yes. which I I am I'm big on. It's something that one one small point on that the the coach that changes the curve. I yes. think there's often the coaches that are doing the better jobs. You know, yes. I think if we didn't yeah. have coaching, people would have natural curves anyway. And yes. so, but in terms yes. of in terms yes. of the outliers, yes, 
it seems to me in my relatively short period as a, as a coach and, and academy director mm-hmm. that all parents think that their child is the outlier. And, and so what then often seems to happen, again, which is a big belief of mine, is when there's a gap between reality and expectation, we have problems and and we have stresses and we have and it and it boils over into into, uh, into other things Brilliant. now now for parents listening if you think your child is the outlier what you're really saying is well my expectation is different to the reality <laughs> well said and, and 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 i think as soon as those expectations boil like that so it's it's how on a on a more micro level, I know we've done lots of studies with just within the academy yes. of simple things like Rafael Nadal has won 14 French Opens. However, he's lost 45% of the points he's ever played. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, different yes. players. And I think it's a great thing for all players and parents to do. Go and look at somebody of some, it might be in yes. your school, it might be somewhere, yes. And, yes. and actually see that quite often players that are having success are losing 50% of the matches that they're playing or they're losing. Just get, get really getting these realities home. Brilliant. My last thing, and then I want to send it to you, Keith, yes, is, please, Dan. is I, the problem I see is when those realities are given because many think that, well, that doesn't apply to me because we're the outlier. We're on an outlier journey. There's always another coach that will set, which will sell the outlier journey. So, so then it can then be perceived as, oh, these guys are negative and they're so fluffy and they, they don't realize how special my kid is and how they're going to go on that journey. How, how do you combat that? Well, I think, again, that uh, you have touched on m- much of it. I mean, that, the, the, the Rafa Nadal, 55% of only the points won, yet has probably won 99% of matches. Yeah. I think that that is the type of reality that comes through. Now, it's quite an interesting reality to actually... <laughs> well, if you ignored it, there would be some dysfunctionality. You either win or lose a tennis match. And so the people who are you referring to, the people who are actually trying to build that everybody is an outlier, which could either be coaches or mistaken parents of their children, have only had to go through a statistical basis about how many matches have they played, how many matches have they won. And therefore, they will either prove their point that this person is exceptional, or they will prove their point that this person is relatively normal in the big curve, in the broad band, in the bell curve. As it were, they don't win any, they win everything. And the big, the big tummy in the middle is, of course, the norm. Yeah. So in that particular way, the same parents who would be getting children into tennis, if they were able to be put alternative ideas about, if your child did not do well in their exams at school, what would your task be to either... Tell the school that they've got their examination system wrong, or would it be to go back to your child and say, how can we improve your results or your grades? Relative to tennis, the examination is always the tennis match, and there's always something to learn by either winning it or having not won it. 
or failed within it. So that is very, very simple. Asking the same questions to the community, to the parents, to everybody, the tennis coaches. If your uh, child did not get their job when they have left education the very first time that they wanted, what would you encourage them to do? Go back to bed, pull the covers over themselves and sleep for the rest of the life, or possibly to discover why they weren't the one that is chosen out of the 40 people who applied for that same job. So in that particular respect, the linkage between what happens on the competitive tennis court is very simple to make with what happens in the competitive life that we all leave. We all have, uh, there are only certain opportunities available, but there are more people who want to fill that opportunity than can get into it. So a, a sensible-minded person would be to examine what is taking place in the sense of what helps me to become successful and what is stopping me from being unsuccessful and do something about it. The beauty of tennis, of course, is that, and the beauty of getting children into tennis, is this can happen on such a repetitive basis. You can lose hundreds of matches, but you're not going to lose hundreds of interviews without something seriously taking place. You're not going to go bankrupt in a business hundreds of times. You're not going to get married hundreds of times before you actually make... Nick, Nick Politeri did. <laughs> <laughs> and there's an outlier, yes. as he were. And, who wants, and, who, who, and then you ask, who wants, who wants to go through that life without a parachute, as he were, et cetera, et cetera. And so in that respect, I think the, continuing to help to help bring the tennis experience, the deep tennis experience, back to a, something that all parents, all adults know about, which is the life experience, much better than the children experience, is a way of helping people so easily identify with how to actually uh, deal with the fact that, uh, that my child is not an outlier. Very good. Very good. Because if they weren't an outlier in their adult world, the parents would be truly, truly worried about them if they tried to behave as one. Yeah, no, very good. And, and, and I think, look, Keith, we both are a, a very, very similar in philosophy. And, 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 and I think in, in, terms, in terms of that, I think our, our success measures would be very similar. And, and that's been a big one for me to explore throughout the mm -hmm, podcast. Mm -hmm. of what is success? It's amazing how often when yes. you ask players that question, they yes. only link it to a ranking. Yes. They only yes. link it to a, a, a tournament win. Yes. But at, at the same time as tennis coaches, yes, it's all interlinked. Yes, ultimately, I'm sure the biggest success for you as a coach is seeing Jamie Baker, as in the, in the role that he's currently in, not necessarily the match. Well and I want to get to his story in, in a little bit. Uh, however, we also will have a success measure of improving performance on the tennis court. You know, ultimately, we, we are tennis coaches and life coaches, but we are tennis specific. So when I go through your journey where you've had a lot of success in terms of winning tennis matches again that word outlier you mm -hmm. know in in the club that i believe you bought 
many a years ago. <laughs> and if I if I get the name right, Watch Torn. Yes, Watch On. Correct. Watch On. Watch On. Yes. And, and at Watch On, you didn't just have one or two tennis success stories. Yes. You, I believe, had twenty nine national champions. Yes. That's more systematic than than yes. just being lucky or or happening to have one. So yes, in terms of a coming from just a performing standpoint, what was it that you and your team were able to do to enable that level of success on the court? Ultimately, it was down to something that was written into a book, which I'm very proud to be partner of with Paul Dent. Called I have the book. The Tennis Coaches Toolkit. There are three pillars in there. Develop effective relationships. Yeah. Create an environment in which people want to learn. And the third thing is continue to challenge people, or we call it steepening the learning curve. Yeah. Now, how that happened was mainly because I couldn't coach. The reason why the place was successful was because I couldn't coach. And that's the truth. I was, I went into 50-50 partnership with another person, Ashley Broomhead, who is of national standard and has been of German league standard. And he has been a lifelong partner in these type of ventures that I've had and still the most closest of friends now. And we still play together, despite the watch on has been successfully sold on. So, you needed two people for a start, one to be at the place looking after the place while the other was out watching the match, which is to say looking at the examination. That's number one. I go back to the idea that I couldn't coach, but I knew how to uh, enjoy playing matches, if enjoyment is the right word, or addicted to playing matches. Enjoyment is what you have when you are having the best meal of your life or you're having watching the funniest comedy program on television. And I don't really relate that to a tennis match where your, I, knees are, where your knees are knocking. I think you can enjoy the challenge, though, can't you? Yes, you can. Or enjoy absolutely right, Dan. You can enjoy the challenge because you, need, because you become addicted yeah. to it. You need it. Yeah. as it were, for good or for good reasons or others. And even if it didn't go as enjoyably as you wanted to, you can't wait to get back to do it again. But the reason why I say uh, what I just said to try to just have catch the um, attention of any listeners or viewers is to say I couldn't coach, is I couldn't, I knew what a match tennis match was like and I knew how to rally with the ball. So in that respect... Um, the matches were watched, the strengths and weaknesses were discussed, which is effective relationships with the players. And then the uh, ball was swapped over the backwards and forwards over the net enough times in a cooperative way to give the strengths either strengthened or the weakness bolstered. And then perhaps some elements of truly rudimentary advice. But what was interesting about it, Dan, was to do with what became something I could only do see in hindsight. If by chance somebody out of the club program was good enough, as they somebody was, to win 
something, a title of prestige, then parents would be similar to what I would imagine to be people who've spent some money on a, on a young racehorse that they bought and need to take it to a trainer who's in form. So in that respect, talented children were then attracted to come to the place because it had got something of, um, of the fact that it broken through at yeah. a different level. Yeah. And then if two people had won a national title, and then three won a national title, because the people who were coaching, myself and Ashley and our helpers, knew what national standards were like. Therefore, we knew how quickly you had to be rising uh, with your wheels off the ground <laughs> from the runway, how much power had to be put into the engine to continue to that type of trajectory. And you had the best racehorses. And then we had the best racehorses because the youngsters were traveling from a, a wide, wide field. But you would understand that because you were bringing in people from different places and different countries to be at Soto. And I've experienced that in different ways. So in that way, a snowball becomes to develop. Then it becomes role modeling. Yeah. Because what happens is that, and it's a go back now and I retract to an early part of our conversation. People like Andy Murray, uh, for us, brilliant. People like Emma, wonderful. People like Cameron Norrie, brilliant. They are not role models. What they do is create an affirmative platform from which we operate. Andy gets a, a personality, sports personality of the year, Wimbledon champion. Emma, of course, the uh, US Open. This is plastered over the back pages. They're interviewed. They're seen. They give tennis a quality platform from which a large number of people can say tennis is a good thing to be involved in. And then somebody like me, a humble tennis player like me, I could put up my hand and say, I, I'm a member of a tennis club as well. I play tennis. Affirmed my decision to spend money and time doing something. But they are not role models. They are affirmative uh, factors in supporting my decision. But back to the Watchorn Tennis Club, when a good aspiring junior arrived at the club and were practicing next door to somebody who was they could talk to, perhaps even get 10 minutes of a warm-up hit with, who just won a national title, they, the people next door were role models. Yeah because they were touchable, talk, you could get near them, you could be in their company, in their presence. And that's why countries like yourself and Argentina can produce multiple champions, because there are so many people who are playing already that so many people have role models of people who are already playing. Mm -hmm. So it's a snowball effect. And it's got, and it has, it has a life of its own in terms of its growth. And not to do with great coaching. Oh, very good. It's environment. And the, re and the reason why you can't, be, you can't do it as a coach, because right now, even the most simplest of life skills, I'm lifting a glass to have a sip of water to continue this wonderful, enjoyable conversation with you, Dan. I've picked it up. I've taken this sip. I've swallowed it. I've put it down. 
I've got no idea how I've done that. If you said to me, Keith, I've never lifted a glass of water and drunk from it. How fast did you lift it up? And I say, well, quite slowly. And you say, no, no, I'm interested in centimeters per second. And then when did you start to slow it down? At what angle did you start to tip it? At what angle did you start not to tip it? How did you know you'd got enough water in your mouth in order to close your lips? <laughs> At what speed did you land it on? I say, Dan, I've got no idea how I've done that. I can't tell you that. So if I can't even tell you that, I can't tell you how to hit a forehand. I can't tell you when to deaccelerate the coordination chain or accelerate it. I can't tell you the rate of rotation of your racket angle in order to be able to have topspin. I've got no idea how you do it. So you can't teach anybody to do that. Skill, optimization of skill, it happens. Being unconsciously competent cannot be described. So you can't teach it but you might create an environment in which people want to learn. Welcome to now making certain that it's not a glass that you give to a child, you give them a piece of plastic. Welcome to the, the fact that you might give them a bit of advice is better do it with two hands than one hand. Don't take too much, take it slowly, as it were, put it down carefully. You can give generalizations, but that's only a learning environment. That is not teaching the skill, because skills can only be learned, not taught. Get real, coaches. I'm going to give a little pause here, Keith, and, and I think what this, what this pause is going to be is people <laughs> listening to this podcast, they've gone through their first notepad. <laughs> and, at, at, and at this stage, now's, now's your time to go and get another notepad to open up another Microsoft document because it's just, it's, it's incredible, incredible insight. And just to, to link that back to, to Spain, you know, as you were talking there on, yes. on the role modeling, yes. I, I think it, it's, it's a fantastic point. You know, we ultimately... If we can't see it, we can't be it, you know, quite often. But 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 when we can, when we Wonderful. can, see it, we, can we, we can very much be it. I, in my experience in Spain, the untouchables as such are more touchable. Uh, yes. So, so, yes. so yes. if I yes. take Henman, Rosetsky, Bates, you know, yes. they were kind of the era yes. ahead of me. They were untouchable for me. They weren't they weren't present. They weren't involved in the ecosystem really other than living their lives mm. and, and doing their thing. Whereas you go, I mean, we're going to Rafa Nadal's Academy next week for a tournament and he's going to be there training and the kids will, will see Brilliant. him and in, in be, you know, in that environment. Brilliant. He, he, he runs a, a tour of tournaments, which are, not just tournaments, they there's workshops, there's his values are very much being passed on. There's there's wild cards given based on parent, coach, and player behaviors. And and that's that's how it's done, you know. And he's heavily involved. His mum's at most of the events, his you know, he's at the final event. And that's not just Rafa, that is something it feels 
that a lot of the Spanish players, Muguruza, who's just won the WCA finals, she's training in a club near us all the time. And, you know, our players are practicing with her. She's very accessible. She's very, and, and, and I do think that is part of the bigger, the bigger picture culture as well. That, that gets then into the ecosystem in, in Spain that, that spreads spreads that message. Brilliantly described, Dan. Brilliantly described. And that is the value of this huge energy you have at, at the foundation level of the pyramid. Yeah. Where the value of the sport is so important that even the people who make it to the sharp end can comfortably get involved with the foundation of the pyramid. This is Dan, you're going to take a break. This is where I've experienced a lot of times at the Speaker's Corner Hyde Park that the apples and the oranges and the bad fruit start being thrown in. So I'm very happy to do the same <laughs> and get and get off, get out of the firing line. No, no, not so. So I'm, I've got a couple more things. So, and what I would like to bring it to now, actually, Keith, is you've, if I think of Keith Reynolds, I think of. I think of coach education. I think of I think of the toolkit. I think of you know life skills. I think of these amazing messages. But in terms of you as, I think of you as a high performing coach. Mm. But you as a high performance coach, yes. the one in my era would be would be Jamie Baker. You know, yes. and, and yes. I think you're you're very strongly connected through perception, you know, yeah. and, and and how it is. And that seems like it's been, was an incredible journey. You went on with Jamie. Give us a little insight into that coach-player relationship and 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 what you took from that and, 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 and how it was to be a part of a journey that had that on-court success that, that ended up, you know, winning matches at Wimbledon and, and those, those type of things. I think that uh, Jamie would certainly be, the most prominent of all the wonderful people that I've been associated with who wanted to have a life on the professional tour. Everybody was of equal importance to me in that respect. But the difference was that some players, because of where they were able to travel to in their, strate- in their, in their flight path, take coaches into higher areas with them. And the coaches are not the ones who play the match for them. So it's the coaches who haven't got themselves there. They've got themselves there via the fact fact that they are an asset to a player who has now got them into into the environment in which it's taking place. And the coach is the viewer. So in that respect, Jamie is extremely memorable because of Davis Cup and because of uh, Grand Slam. I started working with Jamie on the junior full-time tour when he was 16. Uh, He had been invited uh, uh, to be a participant at and was given tremendous help by the coaching squad, including people like Martin Weston at Loughborough University, which was an academy. And Jamie and his family had already made the decision that Jamie, who had got the aspirations of, of tennis playing from a very early age, 
had already was willing to leave the, his home area and his home to a travel from Glasgow um, 300 miles south to Loughborough to be a participant and his family fully supported it. And that is, in a way, says a lot about what is required to, to, to fly the high levels of tennis. I spent a lot of time with Jamie because I wanted to spend a lot of time with Jamie. I haven't been attracted to coach people I didn't want to be with. If no. I didn't want to eat with them, if I didn't want to sit on a coach or a train or a plane with them, I didn't want to coach them. My life was too valuable for me to spend my life with people I didn't want to be with. I would gladly find them other people who might want to help them, but not for me. Jamie, I wanted to be with. I admired his drive. I admired his work ethic. I admired his, admired his organizational skills, things which have so become so... Um, uh, so easily visible to the world in his post-professional tennis life. I was also part and parcel of a, a huge, um, tragic time of Jamie's life when having beginning to genuinely break into the top 100 and he had aspirations to be a ATP player that is to say, regularly on the draw, as opposed to being the winner of the Grand Slams. He never dreamt of that, but he wanted a life being a professional. At 21, he qualified for the Australian Open, had <clears throat> gone through the tournament like a dulcet assaults in the qualifying. Nobody could take a set off him. And he was, went into the main draw. Karlovich was the main draw, a difficult draw because of... Um, Karlovic in terms of his size and his, uh, his serving power is an outlier within the game and Jamie lost in four sets the, the ability to play the game and to know the game better than Jamie was Karlovic's winning point but Jamie was on his track he went on to play Davis Cup played in Argentina now Bandian who he couldn't take much away from but stood up to him but then he played also Carello, who had never been beaten on clay in Argentina, Buenos Aires, on a home match. Uh, the crowd gave Jamie such a rough time. I mean, if he was a football player taking penalties, he would have stepped away from it and asked somebody else to do it. The crowd was so hostile. However, having beaten Carello, he then got a standing applause from a country that really knew their game. And Jamie was on the move. He then got an I. He then got an unpronounceable blood disorder, which was a virus that stuck to his platelets of his blood, and he could have died quite easily if he'd banged himself nasty of internal bleeding. It took him basically four years to get back from that. Now I was with Jamie in that sense all the way through this this roller coaster ride, of which everybody will have, within who wants to go to the highest levels. There's no easy climb up Everest as it were. There's no kind of just packing sandwiches and going. Everybody's going to be in a situation where they're going to bite their nails and wonder if they can get back down. And uh, Jamie had this, and I was with him when he then came back into the game, which was really four years later, because the treatment that he had, and Jamie says, I am lucky to be alive because it was a killer uh, for many people who weren't of the adequate fitness to withstand the onslaught the virus gave. 
Jamie came back um, and uh, went back on and to played and got into Wimbledon. I had said to Jamie from the very beginning, the hardest thing, Jamie, is not what you're going to do while you're playing tennis. The hardest thing is going to be to know when to stop this particular chapter of your life. <laughs> so Jamie played at Wimbledon and he had the good fortune to have a good centre court draw against a very good player, Mr. Roddick. And Jamie played a very, com very, very competitive match to say how little of that he'd had in the previous period against him. And then Jamie had a decision to make that he introduced to me. And he said, Keith, I'm not so, I, I don't want to go back onto the lower levels of the tour. I'm 27. There's a life ahead of me. What should I do? I said, Jamie, well, I told you that this might be the case, but I can't do anything for you on this. But I did, and I hope he doesn't mind me telling the world. What I did was to reduce his decision to a small fairy story that I wrote for him. And I said, once upon a time, there was a youngster who dreamt of greatness. But during the course of his life, he came across, and it was a, in fairy tale story. And then he got to a place where he wanted to be. He was at his very best in there. And then he had to decide whether or not to end his fairy tale life there or take his risk in the big bad world outside. And I left the last few lines open for Jamie to complete the last line of the fairy story. And he did, and he retired, and then has gone on to have an extraordinary, applaudable second life using his tennis-gained skills, the skills of personality, decision-making, resilience, listening skills, tolerance, uh, endeavor, the, the understanding that uh, success is linked to hard graft at the coalface into this next life and, uh, and uh, a huge round of applause for him for tennis yeah. because that is what it allows people to do to launch into another career and what is life about every chapter comes to an end Dan every chapter comes to an end so I would imagine the purpose of life is to teach you how to take the maximum that you can from one chapter into the very next chapter of your life and into the very next chapter of your life and into the very next chapter of your life. And tennis is the most wonderful vehicle to get attached to. Absolutely. Uh, a lovely story. Well, well said as, as always, Keith. And the, Thank you. The, the, the one that I heard about Jamie and I've just realised why maybe I beat Jamie. I beat him one time in in Nottingham in the ATP event in qualifying. Okay, maybe, yes. maybe, maybe, and probably that was when he was going through his illness. So that uh, he, he he needed to he, he needed to be a little bit more um, yeah. energy taken away to give me a chance against him. But in, in terms of the story that I heard was as he went, and I believe it was Santander Bank. Um, if I've got yes. this, if I've got it right, but yes. in the interview, and, and I think this is a massive one for for people listening. And and actually, I think when you were at Soto, we we did this with the kids yeah. actually. But how how he 
sold his his story in the in the right way, reframed that to yes. answer the question to say, well, I've been running my own business over the last <laughs> over the last ten years, and, and I've been the CEO, and I've you know employed people, and and I've done all of these things. So I am the person who is ready for this level. Uh, whether there's truth in that story, maybe you can tell me tell me otherwise, or maybe we'll have to get Jamie to come and tell it himself. But I, I think the the, the point in that is none of this investment is wasted. And, and you talked beautifully there about the, each chapter taking what you can from each chapter. And, and I think that's such an important thing for young tennis players and for parents who yes. feel they're investing yes. to hopefully yes. get their, player to, their, their son or daughter to make yes. some money from playing the sport. Yes. There's always, yes. always a return on investment if you invest the right things. And 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 that's what I think we see time and time again. You've seen well it a said. lot more than me, but I'm starting to see it more and more. The people that invest their unconditional effort, their want, their desires, their passions, if they are in the right environment when they're doing that, they will always, always, always have success. And just getting that definition of success right and and the relativity of that success is important but that is the beauty of our sport dan so 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 aptly happily put and if if i got back into the microcosm of being on the tennis court and coaching and with things which uh, the mental skills demands which uh, uh, paul dent and myself tried to put as many interventions into that the toolkit book as we possibly could one of the most attractive is, in my opinion, become the story you wish to write. Yep. So therefore, at the end of the chapter, when it comes to an end, and you have written the story at the beginning of the chapter, and you now end up as the story at the end of the chapter, then you can have a tremendous success. And the idea of writing the story, you want to be left as the person who was, who everybody remembered you as, and never gave up. Yep. Always had a, a deep handshake for the, whoever was the winner. The one who gave the pre best press interviews. The one who never allowed a ball to double bounce if they could possibly be stopped. Those are legacy things, because in the end, it is the memory of what you were that you will be living with a lot longer <laughs> than the reality of what you are doing. So attempt to attempt to be, not to just do. Very what good. do you want to be? And I'm, that leads to all the things you want on tennis, the tennis court. One 100%, Keith. And, and in terms of that, um, not that I'm wishing you away. You know, you're, 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 very, much, you're very much with us and will be for a long time. But it, it, what, what do you want your legacy to be in this sport? I want the leg, my legacy to be quite simply the seed that grew into the question that governing bodies who are not 
uh, people who are management agencies for personality. They are not IMGs. They are the governing body of the sport. And the sport is not defined by how good you are when you play. The sport is defined by everybody who is a participant at whatever level, however deeply or however infrequently, that the governing body starts to see the wonderful, wonderful um, product that they have within their grasp to look after, to be one which is seen as the most life-enhancing experience that anybody could possibly have. Exactly. And that is what I would want as a legacy. I will never be able to do it, but perhaps if I keep shouting loudly enough at Speaker's Corner with the opportunity to speak to people like yourself who have got an, and congratulations there, who've got an international audience, that seed might grow and become the snowball that actually can knock down barriers. Very good, Keith. And, and I think before we move into our quick fire round, I, I just want to say thank you. You know, thank you for, for coming on to the, to the podcast, but, but thank you for your, your consistent sharing of enthusiasm and knowledge and wisdom and, and messages in our sport. You know, you're, as I said to you before, before we started or before we, we recorded this, you know, I'm here in Spain. There's a Czech coach that happens to be in Gibraltar. And the person he wants to speak to me about is, is Keith Reynolds, you know, and, and your, your, your story, your message, your infectious way is, 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 is spreading all the time in the tennis community. So on behalf of the community, thank you. Thank you. Oh, thanks for that wonderful compliment. It's not how it feels on the inside, but the, the fact that you are giving some feedback is to say it's all worthwhile. It gives me huge amounts of highest octane fuel to carry on. Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Keith. And are you ready now for <laughs> the quick fire round? <laughs> yes, please. Hard courts or clear courts? Clay courts. Serve or return? Serve. If you could say one thing to your 18-year-old self, what would it be? Uh, I, I'm blessed with the opportunity of, a, of the most wonderful trajectory in life. Forehand or backhand? Forehand. ATP Cup or Davis Cup? ATP. Roger or Rafa? Rafa. Medical time out or not? Not. What's your favourite ever tennis memory? Playing at County Week with Derbyshire. So playing tennis in a doubles in a team. And your favourite ever tennis player? Rafa. Wow. So you wish you were coming with us next week. I certainly do, because I believe that, that uh, how would I know? I have been within his presence, which was awesome in terms of his sociability. But in terms of his ability to compete, 
I think that he takes the very best of the game. I think that what he does and how he behaves on court is saying to his opponent, I fully understand both the laws and the spirit of the game, that you always give of your best no matter what the point is, that you never withdraw effort, and that he would say if he could to his opponent, by the way, independent of the fact the spirit of the game says I do all of these things so I might beat you 0-0-0 without you ever winning a point, I do sincerely hope that this is the best tennis game you can ever play against me because how can I be great if you're not great? I need your resilience to test myself against. I think he is the truest competitor. And I was a person who would have been, could have altered history because as a kid, on the electronic scoreboards at Wimbledon, when Rod Laver emerged in the very first open Grand Slam professional tournament, if I'd have clicked left or right, I could have changed the score when he beat Tony Roche and changed, changed, the, course of, <laughs> changed the course of professional tennis. And so, but I think Rafa takes, Rafa takes the spies. Very good. He, all over... Hit the tournaments that I mentioned that he runs over here. The, it's a, kind of the biggest national circuit. His quotes are there. And, and my uh, favourite quote of all time, which is a Rafa, Rafa quote, play the game as if it's the most important thing in the world, but know that it isn't. That sums it up perfectly. And there that's, he is. That's wow. exactly what you've said. So um, lovely, lovely words. What's one rule change you would have in tennis? I would say that uh, if I was at the ITF, I would deny the opportunity of competitive tennis at, to, at a very early stage. Okay in the sense that I would allow people, when they became more mentally mature, in the sense that they were choosing to play the game, I would ha stop having recorded competitive tennis at a very young age, when people don't know what they've let themselves in for at that stage, nor do the parents let them know themselves know what they've let themselves in for. And I like the idea that at a stage when you choose to be doing things independently, which I can imagine is just about double figures, you are old enough to cross the road by yourself, is the time that you are old enough to take on the responsibility of being on the tennis roller coaster ride, which can be brutal. And therefore, I, want, I would want to encourage a bat and ball recreational game, yep. but I would not want them to be within the tennis game as we yep. know it until they're old enough to be able to take the roller coaster ride. And before you answer this next question, I just want to preempt that by giving an answer, you are taking on the responsibility <laughs> of, yes. of getting the next person on the show. So who should our next guest be on Control the Controllables? 
it would be, unless you've had him, Alistair Hyam. Very good. No, we haven't yet. It'd be great to get Alistair on. Who is doing magnificent things. Let's do it. I, I, I'm sure I have Alistair's contact. If not, if I need a bit of weight behind persuading him to come on, I, I know who to call. And that, Dan, is the one of the most wonderful slick marketing acts that I've ever come across. Empowering people who you are interviewing and being able to reach into corners that you might not have thought about yourself. Brilliant. Thank you, Keith. It certainly, it certainly opened a lot of doors, you know, and I, and I think the the one thing that I I feel very privileged to be doing be be doing this podcast. Um, my my motivations are very much to bring stories to the tennis community, you know, and to energize them to, you know, educate and and make sure that people are, are getting these stories into their veins, making it thought provoking. And, and to do that, we need to be getting all of the lenses of the sport, you know, and, and, it, and it seems to have worked well. People have, have kindly given their time like yourself. You know, I hope people continue to kind of give their time because it really is having an impact, you know, and as, as this community builds, um, that's that's what this is this is all about, you know. And it's so I feel very privileged. I feel privileged to be speaking to you today, Keith, as well. So thank you for your time, and it's been a, it's been a real pleasure. And the growth of your life in this particular medium says one of the things about the tennis world. It's given you the Zoom opportunity to bring other people to talk about tennis. Well done, Dan. And what an extraordinary thing to think out of the disaster of COVID, tennis thrives. There isn't a club that you can get a court at because every, everybody in the world has seen what a magnificent game it is because of the adversity in which, through which it can shine. So it's extraordinary. It's the biggest marketing tool we've got. Thanks Thank so you. much, Dan. Thanks, Keith. So I said at the start that it would have you feeling good by the end of listening to that episode and I've got Vicky next to me as always and she always listens through as she does such an amazing job with the edits. How are you feeling after listening to that one? I feel like I've just had an education in the use of the ling English language. Oh, he's so eloquent, isn't he? And, and the, you can just tell how much he loves the sport. It just oozes out of him. Yeah, no, passion humility, wisdom, you know, the, these are the things that certainly jump to mind when we're talking about Keith Reynolds, you know, the, the, there's so many takeaways and, and, and I certainly, I've been away at the Rafa Nadal Academy over the last over the last few days at the 10 Pro event with some of the players, so hello to different coaches and players that I saw there that kindly said that they're listening to the podcast and I was thinking, what do we talk about? Because there's so many bits that you can jump into, you know, and it's it's almost like, okay, well, what what parts do we try and unpack and how do we unpack them when he's already kind of done it so, so amazingly well? But I think, I guess, as a starting point for me, the question that's resonated in my head over the last few days is, are we selling tennis correctly? 
collectively as a sport? Probably not. And it certainly got me thinking about the messages that we're putting out as an academy. Also, the questions that were asked from parents who are who are inquiring and, and kind of asking about the academy. And one thing I was thinking about more than anything is an ad I saw the other day online for a, a tennis club. And it started off really nicely, like listing all the benefits to children of the sport. And I thought, oh, that's great. You know, it's really highlighting pretty much what Keith was saying in that chat. But then at the very end, it said, oh, sign up for lessons with us and we'll make your kid a champion. And I thought, oh no, so close. <laughs> yeah, so close. And that's the whole that's the whole thing about the outlier, isn't it? And, you know, two big things that I certainly took. Well, one, you you don't build systems on, on exceptions. And, and I think you tend to have people that think their child is the exception and is the outlier. And look, you've got to have that ambition and that push and that drive, absolutely. But we have to be teaching the realities of the sport. And and, and on the back of the, the conversation with, with Keith, and it's something we've done lots at the academy, we did lots of work on this with the players last week. And ultimately, there was 400 players playing in the 10 Pro event. And I believe there was two ended up not losing a match all week because you could play in two different age groups. And that was discussed at the start of the week. We then did a fun game, which is quite a good one to do with, with some players, is they got to pick a number between 60 and 100. And then we went into the, the WTA and the ATP rankings and whatever number was picked, we then went through the record of of that player. And off the top of my head, I think Sloan Stevens was around 64 in the world. And she'd actually lost more matches than she's won this year. And that's someone at 64 in the world, you know. And I, and I think just giving these realities. And now I've gone straight to the top end of the sport again, and uh, which is, I think, a natural thing we do because that's what's shoved in our face all the time, you know. And I think we need to be creating these role models. And like, like Keith, that Keith says, it's not just a case of you play tennis and you get all of these amazing benefits that he talked about, doing better in exams, having a more attentive mind, having less job interviews to get to get jobs, you know, all of these things that are factual and ways of improving yourself as, as a person. But you have to deeply participate in this tennis experience. It's not just it's not just a given, you know, it's something that as you throw yourself into it at whatever level you're playing, then there will always be a return on that investment. And the other point, Vicky, I just want to I want to make on this because we've spoken, or I've spoken to all these people. You've listened and you've analysed all all of these people talking. And one of the real common traits that has come through is many players already come from a tennis heritage. You know, we take our son, Matthew, who's playing, you know, to an okay level. He's kind of fallen into it because that's what we do. And and, and those stories have come through in the last couple of weeks. Rajiv Ram, you know, many, many, many of the stories, the Murrays, that, that they've come from that heritage. So how do we get the sport into the hands of people that don't know tennis, don't have a tennis background? And, and I think selling the the dream based on on an outlier probably isn't something outside the tennis world that people buy into whereas if we're able to sell the sport based on all of these amazing things and traits and and almost sideshows of the actual main event 
then I think we've got a much better chance of of the tennis industry flourishing, of people having roles, of more passionate people being involved, of, of, of ultimately the sport that we all love developing and growing rather than just trying to create the next Rafael Nadal or Serena Williams. That's the dream though, isn't it? Rafa Nadal, Serena Williams, it's deep-rooted in tennis, it's deep-rooted in sport to be the best we can be, to be one of the greats of the game. That's who the kids are watching on the television. Look at last week, you're going to Rafa Nadal Academy. One of the most excited messages I got from the week is of the players in the shop buying their Rafa Nadal hoodies. You know, they the big names do sell. Absolutely, and I'm not. I'm, I'm certainly not, and I don't believe Kiefer's saying that there's any issues with these superstars, you know, at all. That they're amazing. They've they've grown the sport. They are the ones that that get the bums on the seats. Those are the ones that create the whole ecosystem that is tennis and is the tennis industry without a doubt but I think the message is just we need to be careful as parents as coaches as players is is just aiming towards that one goal because it's so unattainable for so many and then what ends up happening I call it the black hole of tennis you you end up if you if your goal is so extreme and that's the only goal and you don't have the ability to see all of the other positive consequences of your participation in the sport, then you start to go at 15, 16. Why am I doing this? I'm never going to be Venus Williams. I'm never going to be Roger Federer. So then players just start diving into the black hole and, and, and then we lose players to the sport. And secondly on that, I know you're ready to jump <laughs> in. I also think it creates quite a lot of cynical people about the sport. Well, I was going to say it goes back to how you felt when you got to um, when you got a scholarship to university in the states. You felt at the time that it was you were failing, but looking back at it now, we were both given scholarships to get through university. We came out four years an unbelievable experience and a degree. There's so much more. That's just one example. There's so much more that the sport gives us than just winning a few tennis matches. There is, and, and, and I, have, I have split opinions on this, I think, because I absolutely thought that I was a failure, you know, and I remember being really one of the best juniors in the world, but I, I really didn't think I was good enough. You know, I then went off to American University. That was a failure. Um, I then, uh, probably for the first time in, in America, felt I was actually quite good. And then playing on the Pro Tour, winning Futures events, I felt that was a failure because I was 22, 23 and told I should have been ranked higher. And that's, that's not good. It, it isn't good. And I think we need to, we're talking about the bigger picture here of the sport. But also at the elite, elite level, we also know that's what motivates some of these champions. So, so you will have people saying... Well, actually, we can't make it too soft and fluffy here no. because your Serena Williamses of of the world are motivated by being told then she's not going to win a 24th Grand Slam. And, and that's what the dri- where the yeah. drive comes from. So, so I think we just need to be really clear here. We need to try and just stay away from always talking at the elite level. Of course, that's a big, big part of, of the sport and that we all love. But at the same time, we just want people to understand. And I think the message needs to be stronger. 
on the realities. Like Keith said at the very start in our clip at the start of the of the show, tell people what they're getting in for. You know that 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 that's the reality. You know we've got loads of players at the academy, and we try to let them know what they're getting in for. It's not all rainbows and rainbows and unicorns this sport, uh, but if you stick at it, there's longer term consequences that are incredible. And I I'm a big believer. I know you are as well, Vicky. That if you throw yourself at this sport in the right environment, right opportunities, you won't fail. That was nearly nearly as well articulated as Keith there <laughs> not quite <laughs> nowhere near you know that I mean what he is and he's an incredible man and 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 I've taken so much from from that I'll be listening back to that in my car in, in wherever wherever I am because I I took so much and I I thank Keith so much for coming on to the podcast to share his thoughts and I also know that his bigger ambition is that he, he wants these words, these philosophies to go far and wide. You know, that really is something we've got to continue giving Keith Reynolds the platform to speak to as many people as as he can so that so that we can really improve our sport, improve how we sell our sport, improve the tennis industry as a whole. And I certainly hope you guys have that same feeling after listening to this episode. Please, as always, share far and wide. Send it on to two, two of your friends, two of your players, two of the parents that you're looking after, whoever it might be. And let's get a bit of a train going on this on this episode because it deserves to go go out there far and wide. As always, we will be back next week. We are looking at having a short break over over the Christmas period and I'm sure with all of the episodes that we have that you've got to catch up on you won't mind that as well I would also like just a couple of little mentions one today is is our boy Matthew's birthday so happy 11th birthday to Matthew and last week a bad dad that I am in the realities of the sport I missed our little girl Olivia's birthday when I was away at a tournament so happy 8th birthday to you Olivia we love you very much and also, I want to just a little shout out to Igor, the coach from Moldova who's working in Kazakhstan. What a surprise I got when he came up to me at Rafa Nadal's Academy to say he'd listen to all of the episodes. And Igor, if you are listening to this, thank you. Thank you so much. And to Tomas Rizika as well, who I know has been really pushing to get Keith Reynolds onto the show. And he's, he's right what he says. You know, Keith was always going to be a great guest and I hope you enjoyed Keith speaking as well. So thank you for your support of the podcast. My last one is to all of the Davis Cup teams. We're down now to the last eight. It's getting exciting. Uh, yeah, and Great Britain against Germany today. There's lots of great ties ahead. I know we live in Spain. I know this is a global podcast now. But but come on, Great Britain! You know <laughs> but we've got all of the all of the boys have been on on the show, including the coaches. So control the controllables really does have have a stakehold in that team this week, and we'll be backing you guys all the way. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan, and we are control the controllables. <laughs> <laughs>